0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to VTViewpoint
1: at radiovermont.com.
2: Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, joining me by phone is Chris Barbieri, who is the former president of the Vermont Chamber of Commerce and apparently doing a little touring of China with some folks. So, Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Pat. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Great to hear your voice. We almost met in person, which we'll talk about uh, a little later down in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. But I missed that opportunity. (laughs) Um, So I just mentioned that you were uh, president of the Vermont Chamber, and I saw this number 33 years. You started around 16, 17 years old, right?
0: Yeah, actually, I was 15. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> there
2: you go. <laughs> well, I remember. Uh, wish it were days. so. Uh, you accomplished so much as president. Um, when you look back a little bit, what are what are some of the memories uh, of those years? 33—that's a long time. Thank you for your service. If nobody's told you that.
0: Well, well, thank you. Um, I think when I first took the job, it was myself. Uh, I had an assistant and a bookkeeper, a part-time bookkeeper, and. Uh, we had about, um, I don't know, about six, 6,000 members, uh, no, not that many, I'm sorry, 600 members. And when I left, we were up in more like 1700 members and, um, well over a million dollar budget. And so to answer your question, um, we were not, the organization when I, when I first, uh, began was not doing any lobbying and, um, I remember one day, uh, about six months into the job, when um, uh, Hamilton—I think was his last name—he was—he was from down in the southern part of the state, and he walked on the office to me, and he was a legislator, and he said, "Where are you guys? You know, you should be up here lobbying for the business community," and uh, that opened the door for us, and I think that was really something uh, that meant. A lot to the business community, certainly a lot to the, our organization, that we were out there uh, doing what we should have been doing, and that was representing small business, medium business, large business, any business. So uh, we we really got involved in lobbying, and uh, I think I'd like to think that we were one of the most powerful business lobbies at the state house over the years, and I think that's still true today. Um, so that was very, very important to our members. I think, particularly to the small businesses in the state, who didn't really have the resources to have somebody walking around the state house for them, you know, day by day. Uh, so the the, um, the lobbying and re- uh, representing and supporting uh, businesses in the state, particularly the small business, I think was uh, something that was really important to me and to important was important to our members.
2: Yeah, that's great. You've always, all these years, there's been a strong presence of the chamber up there, and of course Betsy's uh, Betsy Bishops, uh, the head now, and does a great job up at the legislature. So, and I, I would think the small businesses, you're right. Where do they find the funds or the time to go up? Because um, as you know, things change up there on a dime, and you have to be uh, be there and be ready to call your members and rally the troops. So that's great. Good for you. Um I, I noticed in a, in a note that you sent me that thanks to Jim Jeffords, uh, the chamber developed a trade relationship with the Taiwan Chamber of Commerce, which eventually led to your opening a trade office in Taipei. So can you tell us how this all came about? Because that's fascinating to me. And then, of course, what products uh, we began trading um, with China from Vermont.
0: It's, uh, it's kind of a long story, but i got a, f- a phone call uh, one day this is back about nineteen i say nineteen ninety four or so uh f- from senator jefford's office and uh it, it indicated uh, that they were looking to see if we had any interest in international trade uh with taiwan and uh the the inquiry uh said that they had talked to the state first, this commerce department, and they they said that, well, you know, we're really not not into international stuff yet, except for Canada. So um they they called our office and I said, Yeah, I mean at least I'd like to hear what what you have to say. So um sat down with with the uh with a person from the senator's office, and he had um, apparently had someone on his staff who had spent a few months as an intern in Taipei, in Taiwan. Taipei is the capital of Taiwan. And uh, came back and said, wow, you know, uh, this is a small, um, not a small country in terms of, of its um, production and, and, and its value values in terms of size um it was about the 12th largest economy in the world at this time um but it had a lot of small businesses and uh, so the 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 uh, person from from Senator uh Jeffords office said well gee you know maybe we have a lot of small businesses in Vermont maybe we can connect so um we got involved we with a new we had just started a, a international um, trade committee within the chamber because that was becoming in middle 90s international trade was was really taking off. So um, we had just got had this committee. So I asked the um, the Taiwan representative from New York City. Uh, Ty- Taiwan uh, has economic representation in a lot of large cities around the U.S. because of the trade. So um, I asked um, the office if they could send someone, someone up. And, and uh, yes, we had a gentleman who came up. Um, his name was Tom Lee, and he made a very compelling um, argument for why Vermont should not be doing trade with Taiwan. So he indicated that the best way to start to do this would be uh, to have a delegation Come from Vermont to Taiwan uh, and to be hosted by the Taiwanese government to see what uh, the opportunities would be for, for trade between uh, Vermont and Taiwan. So we organized a group of, uh, I think it was about 15 people, including Senator Jeffords. Uh, he and Liz um, went with us on the trip. And of course, having um, someone of that level really got us into uh not only the government of Taiwan but a lot of small businesses and larger businesses so that was the lead in uh and the beginning of what the the relationship between Vermont and Taiwan was and uh, so we picked it up at that point and we're promoting uh trade between Taiwan and Vermont and uh we did some trade shows there, um, let me think now, I think all three years in a row, and they were basically food trade shows. And so we had, we had cheese over there, we had maple syrup, uh, we had other products from Vermont at these, at these um, uh, events, and it turned out that uh, one thing led to another. And uh, I met a gentleman um, who was doing trade, he had a, a trade company, Trading company, and he was promoting soap from Vermont. Uh, We used to make soap, and I don't think we do any longer, but uh, I think in Colchester there was a place that manufactured soap, a lot of it going to hotels and so on. And um, this gentleman in in, uh, Taipei was representing the company. So I hooked up with him, and he's been my mentor now ever since the middle 90s. Um, He had a trading company and a sizable one. In Shanghai, and uh, I got became friends with him, and one thing led to another, and uh, so I I said to him one day, you know, I've been been to his place in Shanghai. Um, I said, you know, I would really like to spend more time in China, and he said, well. I said oh, well, Taiwan at first, and he said, well, why Taiwan? Why not all of China, which, of course, is much, 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 much bigger. <clears throat> so um, I went to the board and boarded the chamber, and I said, this is what I like to do. I like to <clears throat> resign after 33 years at the chamber, and I would like uh, to represent the state of Vermont and have the chamber support me in uh, in Shanghai and in China. and. Um, so the board said, okay, let's do it. So that's when I moved to, to Shanghai um, and spent lived there for three years and uh, still do. I'm not with the Chamber any longer, obviously, um, for a number of years. But I still take uh, mostly uh, tourism groups over. And uh, when individuals like or businesses like to make a contact, I'll do whatever I can to make that happen. So that's a kind of a, uh, a longer story probably than you wanted there. But, um, oh,
2: that's great. That's how, it, it, that's how it
0: evolved over the years.
2: <laughs> you and I met at one of your return trips uh, from Shanghai, and you were telling me how much you loved it over there and that you loved the country, you loved the people. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because we hear different things on this side <laughs> of the ocean, so as you know from the news, what, what did you just loved it from what I could tell?
0: Yes. I, you know, it goes, it goes back to my mom. Um, as a little girl growing up in Manhattan, uh, my grandmother, her mother, uh, passed away. I, I think it was during the, uh, uh, this, the flu, the Spanish flu, uh, oh, back in the late nineteen nineteen twenties. Um, but my so my mom uh didn't have a mother but she had a father and uh, my grandfather who and they lived in Manhattan and my mom's and where they were living was right next to Chinatown cool. um so my mom had friends who were who were younger girls just like she was but were chinese and um so they would invite Hurt to their homes, and yeah, you know, my mom got more a little bit more into the into the uh, Chinese food and also Chinese culture. So and she carried that on uh, through her life, and um, so that was part of the of the interest. Uh, but once once I got there, uh, China is uh, I would say, and I, I've said this to a lot of my friends in China, is the total opposite of the culture of the Western world. Um, Personal relationships are very important in China, uh, and, and even at the business level. I mean, you don't need a lot of documents and signed agreements and contracts in China. A handshake is frequently all you need, um, and that that's very true, particularly in smaller businesses. Um, also, uh, Chinese culture is, is very um, – The work ethic, let me put it that way, the work ethic is very strong. If you don't finish what you're supposed to get done on Friday, you don't, you don't have to worry about doing it until Monday. You commit on Saturday and you finish up with what Mm -hmm. you didn't finish on Friday. I mean, the work ethic is strong. Um, People take a lot of pride in their work and, and in a city like Shanghai, which is 20, 22 million people, uh, that's important. So it, the culture is different. Uh, friendships are are real, you know. Like I said, um, and it, the other thing is you've got to be careful about. Uh, you know, we we joke around about losing face, but we use that term here. You know, ha ah, we lost face about something, but if you lose face in China, it's it's a serious thing. If somebody uh, is accused of losing face. So, you know, the culture is different in that regard uh, and in, in many of others, the work ethic being uh, one of them. Uh, I would say that when I was living there, and I think this is still true today, uh, I hear this pretty frequently from my friends uh, over there, that in general, people, the, the just the civilian population, most people still like America. Um, hmm. When I was living there, almost everybody liked America. But um, the, despite what the government is saying about us and the, the uh, problems that that both of our countries are having politically, uh, the people still understand that a lot of uh, what's coming down in the propaganda from Beijing is just that. It's not. You know, we're not a bad country. People understand that. Um, Certainly, a very large number of young people who want to go into higher education study in the United States. We still have a very large population of not only Chinese, but Japanese and other East Asian uh, countries at our universities and colleges. So there, there's a difference between what the politics and the politicians are saying, and the Communist Party in China is saying, versus what is reality. And, uh, of course, the government in China owns all of the media, everything, radio stations, TV stations, um, you name it, and they own it. So the government can put out whatever they want on the TV news, um, which a lot of it is propaganda, but the people... Um, most people understand that there's another side to this. And there's still, I think, a good deal of admiration and respect for the United States in the eyes of the Chinese people.
2: Oh, well, that's great. That's sort of great to hear, because uh, you hear some of this stuff and it gets pretty worrisome. And I, I wonder about the Americans that are over there, if they're not a little concerned um about their safety over there because uh, we have you know we've heard these stories you know i- I took a break and said I'd come back and talk about New Jersey, but when you're old, you forget these things um how <laughs> yeah. did you how did you get um how did you get to represent new jersey
0: well when I, I was representing the Vermont chamber when i was um in in shanghai right uh for the whole for the whole country you know, China um There was an organization when I was uh, at the chamber that represented all of the chambers of commerce. It was an association of state chambers of commerce. And at uh, one of the meetings we had, we met twice a year, I was talking about uh, the relationships we were were building in Taiwan and in mainland China. So what happened then was that I was uh, uh, asked by New Jersey if I would represent them as well. So I said, yeah, I mean, I can do this. I'm doing the same thing. Uh, the process is the same; it's just for two different states. And the Vermont Chamber said that's fine. We don't have a problem with it. So that's how that evolved.
2: Hmm. Cool. And what did New Jersey trade? Do you remember? I'm trying to think.
0: About yeah. Right um, what was? Yeah. One of the things I do remember uh, clearly was, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, some of the things that. We would do in representation would be representing uh, the Vermont Chamber, or in this case, New Jersey Chamber, at trade shows. Um, that not necessarily always just bringing people here and putting them together, but also trade shows, which could lead to that kind of a uh, relationship. Uh, so, um, re- New Jersey became uh, one of the other. C- uh, chambers I was representing, and there was one uh, one particular uh, young man I remember who had. He made automotive. He was a manufacturer in, in New Jersey and Newark, and he had a small company where he manufactured specific automobile parts. And he had done some research and realized, uh, found out that there was some demand for that uh, in China, but that the demand was was greater than the uh, supply so he came over and uh and I connected him with a number of manufacturers of these parts so you know he was in this case buying from China for uh for sales in the United States But um, he came over and we spent a good four or five days, which I connected him with different manufacturers, and uh, he ended up with a contract and that was out. So those are the kind of things I was doing over there. Uh, One of the areas that I believe we made the biggest success for uh, for Vermont was in education. There are a, a, a very large number of Chinese uh, families that can afford to send their kids to the U.S. Uh, or or the United Kingdom or U.K. or whatever for for um, for educ for the higher education. The United States, U.S.A., is usually number one if they've got the money, if the family has the money. Education is very important to the Chinese, very important. Uh, So when they can afford it and when their students would – when their kids, rather, would be able to get accepted, uh, they would do everything they could to get their kids to be educated in the USA. So there were – I mentioned different kinds of trade shows. Well, there was an education trade show once a year in Shanghai, and it was the same show, but it was on a different date in Taipei and Taiwan. And – what we did here in Vermont is uh, what I put together. Was none of the schools here really had enough resources to be at these shows? You know, it meant buying the buying the spot, which was expensive, and then having somebody there to represent the school. So what we did is we we bought at these education um, events. We bought one spot. You know, one uh, uh, place on the uh, on the at the show. Um, that we could set up and not just have one school, but represent all of the schools in Vermont, all the ones that were willing to to buy into it. So we would have anywhere from six to 10 or 11 uh, colleges or universities in Vermont. And we called it Study Vermont USA. Study in Vermont USA was the name of our booth. And we, I think, did quite well uh, with students with creating uh, students from China to to Vermont. And one of the things that was appealing to these kids' parents was that you know a lot of the a lot of the you know like like the Harvards and so forth and so on. They're all in big cities. These folks, um, the kids' parents, had seen enough American TV. To know about the crime that was going on in big cities, and they really were more interested in being able to go good, go to good schools in rural areas. And uh, so when they saw Vermont, and we told them where Vermont was, and we showed them the pictures, and that was a big part of how the decision was made to go to the University of Vermont or or Linden or any of our other schools versus going to one of the big city schools. Uh, so that was I think that was a huge uh, plus for us when we went to these shows.
2: That sounds incredible. Um, and um, it's just such a binding thing to, to talk about education, and I think we all know um, how important that is. You hear about it here in, in the States, how important it is for the Chinese to uh, – well educated exciting um, I was talking about um, I was thinking about I met a woman from I think it was she was the ambassador came to Vermont and I met with her and I and I was instructed beforehand how to conduct the meeting with her and I had to take my business card and put it in front of me with the with the the letters facing towards her so she could read it and they gave me all these instructions. And I and I was thinking, I mean, how did you learn? We have to take a break in a second. But how did you learn? It's very important to them to do things in a certain way. And how did you learn all that? You mentioned a mentor. Um, is that the way you learned how not to make a mistake?
0: Yeah, basically, um, I, when I moved to Shanghai, I mean, I've been to China a number of times. And, and the gentleman I met, I mentioned earlier, who was, a, like, a, like I said, is a mentor to me, um, he taught me a lot. But when I got to Shanghai, um, I just moved there, and I, I didn't want to live in an expat area. You know, I didn't want to live with a bunch of folks from, from USA and Canada and all that stuff. I wanted to live in a middle-class Chinese neighborhood, and that's where I moved to. Um I, there were three brand new high rise residential and I was in one of them on the twenty sixth floor, the top floor, and um I you know, I walked to work every day about twenty minutes and I was living in a place where there are hundreds and hundreds of Chinese. I was the only foreigner. And that's the way I wanted it. What
2: what what did you experience living um in in the uh, middle middle uh, groupers or uh, with the middle class people?
0: Yeah, well every you know, people were were very friendly to me. Uh they were curious, a lot of curiosity. Chinese are very curious. I, I missed saying that earlier. Um curious as to what am I doing here? You know, I and I would explain it to them. Um you you had asked and earlier before we had done the show about the language situation. <clears throat> um, English is taught in the schools in, in China and and um a lot of people know some English or some people can speak good English, but most of them uh, can speak some of it. And there are those that can't speak any of it still, but people were very kind to me. Um, And, you know, I I was the only person in this three big 20, 26, uh, 26 level apartments. And uh, people were kind of been nicer to me. You know, Uh, my neighbors were, were very nice. One time I got locked out and locked out of my apartment. Uh, They were very helpful in getting me around to get another key and so on. People were were very kind to me. And I was working in an office, of course, where everybody was Chinese and my assistant was Chinese. And uh, uh, my friend Nelson, the guy that we've been referring to, I was in his office. Uh, I had a spot in his office separate from his staff but uh, his staff was there he had probably 12 people working for him that were very helpful to me when i needed uh, that kind of help but the um the culture um i wanted to live there so i could understand the culture better um most uh, folks from USA end up in the expat area uh where they buy Where there are supermarkets that are like in in the USA, they can buy American food and so forth. And they're living in China, but they're eating American food. And I tell you, there is no better food. And I'm Italian. There's no better food than Chinese food, real Chinese food in China. I mean, it's incredible. Um, There is such a uh, variety of Chinese food. And uh, it's, um, it's, it's just great um mafu tofu mafu tofu is my favorite it, that's uh spicy uh sp- spicy um uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for uh, sp- spicy spicy curds it's um I'll think of it in a minute anyway uh, the food is fabulous i mean you know chinese food here is good um depending on where you go for it. new york city of course would be pretty good but it's still not the same as being in China. There is right. so much different kinds of food. Each province seems to have its own kind of food. Uh, it, it's great. So anyway, I, I lived in that, lived there. Uh, I, I enjoyed my time there. Uh, everybody could not have been nicer to me. And um, even walking to work, which was about 20 minutes back and forth each day, I never saw another foreigner except me huh. until about, two years and there was this other guy one day walking the opposite way on the street. And I had to stop him and say, Hey, what are you doing here? This is my territory. <laughs> um, but it's uh it was a great experience for me in so many ways.
2: That's great. And you're not exactly a short guy either. So um, you must've uh, stuck out for sure. Right. Cause when I, when I met this woman from Taiwan, I'm sick, I was six, but I've, I've shrunk a little with age. And when, when she walked into my room with the heels and the six foot, I think she was a little taken aback a little bit. But it's the way it is. What are you going to do? Um, I had a friend. Uh, but,
0: Pat, just like, let me interrupt you for just a second. I apologize for this. But um, all Chinese are not short. I think people think that Chinese, all Chinese are short. I tell you, there are a lot of tall Chinese. Yeah. Um, not, only, not only males, uh, tall female Chinese. It's it's much it's uh, the representation that people think of all Chinese is short is not true. Uh, There's a very, lot of tall Chinese.
2: Very stereotyped. Sorry about that. I I honestly didn't realize that. I thought they were all fairly short. I had a Japanese. Uh, um Transfer from uh, Sivagagi, where I worked in Ardsley, and he came. He was five ten, and I was because I was going to be his host, so I was sort of glad about that. Uh, but he was talking about the food, the Japanese food that he eats at home versus what we consider Japanese food here, and he goes, "No, no, no, not quite the same." Yeah. So I think it's it's uh, probably the same with uh, Chinese food. But uh, and you were telling me about um, trying to get some businesses from Vermont established over there and uh, one in particular um which I found interesting, green Mountain coffee tried to to make a a headway in in China, but sort of failed because they uh well i maybe they just didn't understand the the culture or the cost of things or whatever but um I just found that surprising
0: yeah we we uh the well, the first Projects uh, with my friend Nelson that we were on. Uh, he was very interested in this because he wanted to be able to to uh, get Green Mountain Coffee, or coffee in general, but Green Mountain Coffee in particular, right. into Shanghai. And um, it was much more difficult than we thought. Uh, Green Mountain Green Mountain Coffee said, you know, they didn't support us other than saying we'll sell the coffee to you. So that didn't help. We had we had to work. Uh, in terms of getting soliciting support and and getting contracts for the, for their product on our own, um, but what we didn't realize was that there was a lot of other much larger national companies that saw coffee in China as a huge market, particularly in in the uh, um, cities where which were more pop- more condensely populated. Um, So we got started on it and all of a sudden realized that there were a a number of other much larger coffee companies that were from out of of China, uh, particularly from Japan, uh, that were already in or about to put a lot of resources into the the Shanghai market. And we just we didn't have the resources to do it. So uh, we just let it go
2: oh that's too bad cuz that is good coffee that's for sure um
0: but the point here the point here i think is that, that you know I, I guess it's uh the, the the thought is that chinese people drink nothing but tea but that's not true <laughs> there's a lot of coffee coffee shops uh around shanghai and in the other big cities in china so coffee while it's not up to tea yet it's closing in on tea particularly with the younger folk
2: interesting See another misconception. There you go. Um that's uh, that's really interesting. Um I wanted to talk about your tours because I think they must be fabulous. You know the people, you know the the restaurants off of the the tourist uh, trail and um you must really show them a wonderful time.
0: Yeah, yeah what we tr- what we do is um and I enjoy doing these uh, small just a small group. People who have never been to China before, maybe eight or ten, at twelve at the most, Um, and we start off in Shanghai uh, and we stay in the hotel, which is used to be a residence and it's in a residential area. Beautiful hotel, Uh, very small, very small. You know, it's it's just a gem. And then we spend a couple of days in Shanghai seeing all the sights to see in Shanghai, which are a lot. And then um, moving moving on to a a city called Xi'an which is where the the um, soldiers are. Uh-huh. Um, and we sped, spent about four days there, uh, not only seeing the terracotta soldiers, but also a lot of other historical things in the city, including a, a wall, a city wall, which if you get on the wall and start walking, it's 10 miles all the way around. Wow. And uh, it's... The city wall is still almost exactly the way it was when it was built hundreds of years ago, and it's wide on the top it's it's like i say it's big um and it's open to the public so we always one of the things we do is we go there and you can ride around on a bicycle, you can walk it if you want to you can do whatever you want um but there are other things in that city um like there's a, a Muslim section there uh there are a, a number of other ethnic Parts of the city uh, that are really interesting to see, and then uh, we go to Beijing. Now, most people will get in the plane on a tour, a regular tour, and you fly to Beijing. Well, we take the train five hours, maybe five and a half hours, but you see if over by the way, these are high speed trains that go hundred and forty miles an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Um, you see everything uh, over hundreds of miles. Beautiful uh landscaping, farms, mountains. Uh we go through some cities. Uh, it's just an opportunity to see what China really looks like.
2: And, uh, Chris, you know, as opposed to being caller. on a plane. I'm sorry to interrupt. We and, have a caller, um, Joel from Colchester. Joel, you're on the air with Chris Barbieri?
0: And good morning. I, I have two questions that um, may not sound serious, but th- but they are. One of uh, one of, and I'll ask them both, and I'll sit back and listen. Uh, for, first of all, I'd like to you know you were talking about food. I'd like to know what Chinese people eat for breakfast. I preface this by saying, you know, uh, since you never see a Chinese restaurant. That serves breakfast. You'd get to think that maybe Chinese people in China don't eat breakfast. And my second question is, knowing uh, that Chris Barbieri knows an awful lot about automobiles, how do Chinese cars compare to the ones you're used to, both the old uh, Mopar Chevrolets and uh, the newer uh, the newer cars that are coming out these days?
2: I think this is a Joel we know, Chris.
0: Uh oh. <laughs> My anonymity has <laughs> disappeared. And yeah, I'll see Chris at the auto you know. show. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Let you me go, take Chris. those first ones first. Um, Chinese in the morning don't have big breakfasts like we do. Uh, they will usually have uh, toast and maybe a little bit of cereal and uh, some fruit juice of some kind. And that's pretty much the kind of stuff that we eat here. Um as far as the cars go, huh. China is now the largest manufacturer of automobiles, um, for China, not for export. Uh, they're not really exporting anything I'm aware of at the moment, but, uh, the number of the, the ability of the Chinese people to buy automobiles has just skyrocketed and they are buying cars. Um, so Ford, GM, uh, other, European makes have manufacturing facilities in China. And uh, very, you know, if you you go in any big city in in China, you'll see BMWs and and Audis and all kinds of uh, upscale cars. Uh, I do have a connection with a a gentleman um, that I met um, a number of years ago in Beijing who has an antique car museum. Mm. And uh, for the past five or six years, I've been. Uh, finding antique cars for him and shipping them uh, over to China uh, for his museum. Uh, but there are more cars uh, produced now uh, in China than any other country in the world.
2: That's interesting. And what size uh, cars like- are they, Chris? Cause
0: I'm sorry? The,
2: uh, what, ca- what size cars are most, uh, most popular? Because here in the United States it's trucks. But in China, are they medium-sized cars or small cars?
0: Oh, mostly smaller. <clears throat> well, it's, it depends. Um, there are smaller cars, but there are a lot of um, European cars, uh, like I said, uh-huh. Audis and and uh-huh. uh, you know so on. So the cars are not as big as ours in general. But uh, and there are no no trucks. I mean, there's no pickup trucks right. at all in any of the cities. Uh, the only trucks you really see are making deliveries or their government trucks uh, doing something. I should mention. Um, electric cars. Uh, yeah. China is really way ahead of us on this one. Uh, they've, they've built the facilities through some of the really huge dams uh, that provide electricity to the system, and they are selling electric cars rapidly. Um, I think there may be more electrics now in China than there are uh, gasoline-fueled cars so they're way ahead of us on that one and and they have to really do it because of the pollution situation so that's uh, right. one reason that they're doing it and one way that they're tackling it
2: how many how many people you mentioned it before and I went completely out of my mind how many people are in shanghai you mentioned some that's about that 22
0: million whoa that but, is a big thing but, but, but you know I, when i say that people go oh my god because you think of new york city with seven yep. or eight million, but the oh. geographic size of Shanghai is huge. It's about the size of the state of Delaware. So, so it's, um, it's not like, you know, if you walk around downtown Shanghai, it's not much different than walking around downtown Manhattan, uh, not, not crowds all over the place or anything like that.
2: If people want to experience a tour of China with you, how how do they get in touch? Is there any information they can find on the web?
0: Sure. Um, if they can get a hold of me, I can, you know, people never remember phone numbers when you give them to me, but um, I guess I could, that's probably be the best way it's, and it's uh, 802-223-3104. Great. Uh, that's 223-3104. And yeah, I'd love to, I'm looking to put together a group in the, in the uh, late summer, early fall. Um and And again, only you know eight or nine to ten people I don't like these big uh groups <laughs> big buses
2: no uh, I don't either go around so when you have to move i like i like small too that's a good idea and plus to go with somebody who's lived there and and knows the 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 back alleys and the the really cool restaurants that perhaps aren't on the the tourist map, I think.
0: And you know, the one the one thing that uh, I didn't mention earlier was when you go to Beijing, that there's all kinds of things to see in Beijing, but you have to go to the Great Wall. If you oh, go to yeah. China, you have to see the Great Wall and walk on the Great Wall. It is amazing.
2: I remember um, Senator Doyle went there for one trip, and I remember him talking about that and how impressed he was with the Great Wall. So I would love to see the terracotta soldiers. That's what I would love to see. That fascinates me. Anyway, um, not to switch subjects, but um, you and my husband share a passion of Mopar. We almost got down to Carlisle for the big Mopar show, but unfortunately, uh, the flood and all the disasters which is happening in Vermont um, uh, kind of kiboshed that a little bit. But coming up is something that you're very involved in. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, the 66th annual Antique and Classic Car Meet at Far Field um, is the 11th through the 13th of August, so it's coming up. And uh, we usually have, you know, four or five hundred show cars. Um, We have what we call a car corral that that's a place if you want to sell a car antique car or any kind of car really, uh, you can place it there for three days. I think it's $45 or $40 for the three days and a uh, flea market, a huge antique car parts flea market. Uh, it's, it's an amazing flea market. And, uh and then we have a parade on Saturday, uh, all the show cars through Waterbury, uh, parade. And, uh, Sunday is the judging of the cars and the uh, and the prof- the trophies given out for the ones that are the the best and I uh, forgot to mention the street dance on Saturday night there's a street oh, dance good. rock and roll okay. street dance with Joel Nadjun it is a hoot um, so there's a lot going on at the show there's a cra- what we call a crafters tent where where crafts people uh, can have put- it doesn't have to be connected to antique cars at all. Just whatever you, whatever kind of craft you have, you can mm-hmm. get a spot there. Uh, so a lot goes on at this show. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, right. Friday's when a lot of the cars come in. Uh, the flea market's already set up. So Friday is not the, It's don't want to say it's quiet. There's a lot going on. But uh, Saturday is when just about all the show cars are there and Sunday. Uh we do have um a lot of food. Uh there's a lot going on at the show. Uh so I I would you know if anybody's interested at all in automobiles, um, whether whether they're, you know, from nineteen oh five or whether they're from nineteen ninety five or later now this year, we've been having later cars on display. Uh, it's a great show. Um fifteen dollars for spectators, twelve dollars uh uh twelve and under rather are free. Great. So we get thousands of people at the show every year, and uh, all we need to make it another super su- success is good weather.
2: Yes, please. But for a lot of reasons, we need good weather. Um, anyway, it's uh, Farfield must be a great place to have it because you can see the whole thing. I mean, it's so open. Um, so that's great. And I um, uh, and you're you're very involved in the planning of this, are you not, Chris?
0: Yeah, I do the marketing for the promotion for the show every year. Yeah, and I should mention that the show is put on by our club, and the show is put on all by volunteers. Uh, So all of us, uh, the club members and people who aren't even members, uh, come to help us do the show. It's all voluntary, so uh, it's something that we're pretty proud of.
2: Thank you, Chris. I'm so thrilled that you came on today. It was really fun catching up with you and talking about your experiences with China cuz um I think there's I I read right somewhere there's 8,000 I don't have the exact number in front of me 8,100 and something businesses US businesses over there so um I'm, I don't know what kind of relationship sometimes we have cause obviously Well, you know, the people have
0: a great relationship and the businesses have a good relationship it's the politicians that get in the yeah. way. Yeah. To be honest yeah. with you.
2: Isn't that a isn't that a shocker, statement? All right. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight. Uh, This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Speaking of marketing, we're going to speak to a young woman who's got um, a a company called Grow. And uh, we'll be right back.
0: In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com.
2: Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. My guest is Miranda Dalton, and she is um, the owner and uh, principal at Grow with Miranda. Um, it's a so She's a social media manager, content planner, and marketing strategist, all of which I am not. Um, but I met Miranda at the Waitsfield Farmer's Market, which, as you, some of you may know, is one of the best around. We started chatting, and I invited her on the show because... Um, I was uh, very interested in what she had to say. So, Miranda, welcome to the show. Hi, Pat. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you're welcome. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how uh, you got involved in marketing?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I um, my background is actually in education, and I started my first career, as I like to say, as a teacher. And I really got into social media when my mother-in-law started a baking business out of her home, and I started running her Instagram page, and that was the only marketing tool she had was Facebook and Instagram, and her business really started to grow in her local community in Arizona, and I really saw it blow up. She started getting wholesale resellers in the community. She was... Uh, popular and booked out. And I said, wow, this is a really powerful tool for small home-based businesses to really reach an audience and market pretty inexpensively. And I started doing it as a side business along with my teaching. And I started getting more and more clients and my expertise grew. And now I do it full time. That's
2: great. That's a, that's, a, that's a skill that many of us, I'll uh, admit, do not have. And it's very important these days um, to know about social media and what works and what doesn't. What I found interesting was that you were at the farmer's market.
1: Do you find that a good place to to make
2: connections and to meet people?
1: Yeah. So as you know, um, in this economy, a lot of us, especially someone in my age group, we do a lot of gig work. So one of my gigs is being the market manager. And, uh, with that role, I'm able to really leverage my expertise in social media. So, uh, the farmers market has a huge community. I just recently did a poll and over our 3000 followers, over half mm-hmm. of them live out of state. So being able to communicate what's going on in the market to these out-of-staters has been perfect for leveraging people to come to the market, attend different events. And that was really amplified with the recent mutual aid efforts we saw happening in the community. So with different donations, especially like the NOFAVT.org Emergency Farmers Fund, I was able to communicate some of those efforts through social media And people from out of state were able to help our community when they couldn't be out here actually lifting sandbags or feeding the community. So I think having someone who is an expert in social media uh, in a role like that can really help leverage the community as well as any mutual aid efforts we have Um, and even just promoting business, right? Right. Well,
2: you talked about um, getting to know your clients. And, and each one of what you do, whatever, whatever account you set up for these individuals, it's an individual account. It's, it's designed for them and who they are. Um, how, how do you draw that out of somebody? Um, I mean, I could blab for an hour and not say anything. How, how, how do you get to the core of who they are and what the product is and, and, and what would work for them to sell it?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people who are business owners are experts in whatever that field is. I have a client that is a dog photographer, and I also have a client that makes tea towels. So those are very different businesses, require very different marketing strategy. So I always like to start off an initial uh, consultation with a conversation, just so I can get to know the voice of the person, their passion for whatever it is that they create. And then it's kind of my job to tell that story to the masses because because we've learned that people are connected to people. People want to buy from people. They don't want to necessarily buy from brands. And a lot of people are afraid to put themselves out there and get on social media. So if I can sit with someone, really understand their stories, I can help bridge that gap from what it is their business is to the person who's behind it. So I always like to start with a conversation. I like to ask them what are their goals from social media? Because a lot of people don't want to be viral. They just want to inform people of what it is that they do.
2: That's really that's really great. I've I'm looking through my notes and somewhere you said, which I thought was fabulous, you said if I if I don't offer what you think you need, Tell me about it. I'll learn it and we'll do it. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that yeah. is great that you have that kind of initiative, um, to learn something new and to, to make it happen. So you're yeah. open to whatever
1: your client wants. Yeah, I think that's the teacher in me. I, I don't really see things I don't know as an obstacle, just an opportunity. An example of that is I had a friend recently reach out and they said, Mir- Miranda, do you do website SEOs? And I was like, well, I don't design websites, but SEO, which is search engine optimization, is a huge part of social media marketing. So I can use my research skills in the realm of social media to help you find keywords for your website. And so I was able to help um, a client and a friend with their website, even though that's not something that's directly in my background. It is kind of a transferable skill.
2: So I I know all I know is Facebook and maybe TikTok. Although I don't go on it, but I but I read it. Uh, but there's I don't even know half of them. There's Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and Facebook, and whoever and some now we've got two new platforms that are. That have been introduced that everybody's talking about. How do you know what's the best? You can't keep them all up, I don't think. Um, I keep them because what's important is to make sure your your data is current because that's the worst thing I would think is if you've got old data um, out there. I mean, do you do you decide what's best for me given whatever product I have, or whether I should be on Instagram or Facebook, or I mean, how do you make those decisions, or do you honestly? ask people to be on everything they can. So
1: you're exactly right, Pat. So it's a less is more type of situation, and it's based on the business and who your ideal customer is. Another really popular social media platform that we often don't think of as social media is LinkedIn. And I have some clients that I do manage their LinkedIn, and it is someone who is a professional um, executive coach and mindset coach. So she wants to meet people who are in the business realm. So it doesn't really make sense for her to be doing TikTok dances. It makes more sense that she's putting her information on a platform like LinkedIn. And it's interesting interesting that you mentioned Pinterest because Pinterest is really popular with anyone who has an opportunity to do e-commerce. So if you have an online shop, I would suggest that we really focus those efforts on Pinterest as well as if you have any kind of blog or podcast. So if you are a coach and you are putting out your own media in the form of a blog or a podcast and you want more listeners on those uh, platforms, we would suggest something that is a little bit more viral like a TikTok or a Pinterest. Now, the most common social media platform that I help guests with or customers with is Facebook and Instagram because those are our connecting with people platforms. And like I said before, people like to buy from people they don't like to buy from brands. So when I am initially starting out a client who maybe doesn't have an online presence, I'm going to start them off on Facebook and Instagram, especially if their ideal clients are local customers, because they're, people look for local connections on platforms like Instagram and Facebook. And you mentioned new platforms. Instagram and Facebook, their parent company is called Meta. And Meta just released a new platform called Threads. And if you are an established social media presence, I would suggest it's worth tapping into a new platform because the community there is so small. So it really has an opportunity cost to connect to a larger audience when these new platforms are starting out. But the number one complaint I get, and that's why people are hiring social media managers, is they don't have time to manage it all. So if you're hearing this and you're like, I have no idea what to do or even to get started, and I'm overwhelmed, one, I can help you. And two, you don't need to do it all. You mentioned,
2: um, I'm going to ask a really stupid question. Yeah. I'm going to ask about hashtags. I have no idea how you create them, what they are, and how they work.
1: That's an excellent question and it's okay not to know. I think there's so much in social media that is confusing and just being able to ask is a great start. So hashtags are words and phrases that we call keywords and when you put the pound sign and then your words and phrases together, that creates a link and now any media that uses that same hashtag is connected. So that's the huh. purpose of using a hashtag. So if I use the hashtag, hashtag #VermontViewpoint Viewpoint, every time I talked about this radio show, not only the content WDEV would be creating would be linked with that, but also any guests. So it's an important tool in connecting and linking content.
2: That's, that's really excellent. I have to practice that, I think, a little bit. Um, I also, I do a TV show, and um, mm-hmm. we notice that we do it an hour and what we try to do is the first few minutes capture the whole essence of the TV shows. So because we figured and I that you've got to capture the person right up front, otherwise you lose them. So if they're interested in watching, they'll watch the whole thing. If they're not, they'll go on to something else. How do you work with people when you're doing the uh, video, when you're doing the blog? That's the new thing these days is the blog. Yeah. How,
1: how do you do that? How do you I- get them to shine? Yeah, so I leverage that same idea uh, that you want to hook people in. And people are interested in really two things. People don't realize this about social media because it's on our phone, but it is a new place to find information. And so you want to educate or you want to entertain because people are spending a mass amount of time on their phones. So if you're not educating or entertaining, people are not going to listen to you. So a good hook, if you are in the education space, meaning you are trying to teach someone about something in your business, would be to get straight to the facts and then use storytelling to connect that fact to why it's important to the customer. And then entertainment is really important for maybe content creators, but not necessarily businesses. One way that I Have businesses try to leverage the entertainment factor is by creating videos that are showing a start to finish process. People really like to see things through completion, and we show that that really gathers uh, their viewers' attention. So, if you, for example, are printing tea towels, and we can get videos of it coming out of the beautiful colors coming out of the printing press, that's going to be entertaining for a lot of people
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense for people to see um to see what's happening to, to actually see um what goes into making the product that's again I was trying to um i wrote a letter believe it or not gutsy that I am um to um uh commerce and community development and i said uh here in Vermont that that um we should we should show Vermont doing things rather than the picture, yeah. the cows and the picture of just to really show the activity and the energy in the state. And uh, we had a good conversation about that, so I was pleased with that. And I think that's what you're saying is people people want to see the energy in something to
1: to uh, have something to relate to. And the start and finish of things. I know that we have recently had a natural disaster. And so a lot of popular media content coming out of Vermont was from the flooding. And I think people were really intrigued by that content because it was a before and an after. And now we're yeah. seeing the opposite, the before uh, when it was flooded and all the devastation and then the rebuilding and the after. And so I think as we grow as a state, it's important to tell those stories. I know we're on the cutting edge in Vermont on so many different industries. And if we can tell those stories in a way that's really appropriate and highlight our state, I think that's going to get people interested in coming here, whether we are trying to build tourism back up after after the pandemic or if we are just trying to get into, workers here to work in industry, depending on what the needs of the state are. It's really important to tell those before and after stories.
2: Yeah, we're going to have to say we are open for business, right? Let people know that we've uh, – and we will um, get it back. That's, I, uh, Vermonters amaze me. I, they really do. Um sometimes I get mad about political things but um but when disasters happen like this it doesn't matter about politics we're all in it together and we fix it and um I think it's very it's just an amazing state for that purpose for that reason that people just get together um and
1: I'm sure you Yeah. Done your work. I think with Vermont we're such a community oriented state, and we are a small community in our small towns, and then we're the larger community of being a small state, and that kind of brings into an idea of social media that we're really seeing and a trend that we're seeing. People have this desire for connection, so when Meta launched Threads, everybody was on there and interacting with people on a more uh, real, unfiltered, word-to-word network and that hasn't been seen in years, because previously we were working off of Instagram and perfectly curated videos and pictures, and we were depicting to the world, uh, not necessarily the most real parts of our life. And we've realized over time that people want to see a more authentic connection, and they want to interact with their community. And I think social media can really be a place to leverage those connections.
2: You just said Threads, which is I have not pursued that at all. What, what? I don't understand. What makes that so different than than other uh, platforms? I know you explained yeah. it, but maybe you could kind of rehash it again.
1: Of course, of course. So Threads is the new platform from Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, and it is a text-based platform. And a lot of people say it's comparable to Twitter. So it runs off of this idea that you are typing out words and you are communicating in a few sentences, any ideas, and then people are replying to that idea with their own thoughts. And so that's where the idea of threads come in, because you'll have one idea and attached to it below, you'll have threads of other conversations. And we've seen us taking a step back from conversations. Because we've done video format and video format is very one way, right? I'm speaking to you, you're watching it. And there's not a lot of crossover of people commenting and interacting with it beyond what you can do with a like. And so this idea of threads is to get people actually connecting and commenting. And people say that it is kind of a uh, competitor to Twitter. So we'll see where that goes. Um, and it's very new. Not a lot of people are on there. Um, and it doesn't seem to be having the growth that they were anticipating, even though something like in the first 10 days, 80 million people downloaded the app. Um, I don't know how people are currently using it. And I think people are afraid to get on a new platform. I think there's a lot of people who are social media fatigued.
2: Well, you heard, well, I just did a show on China and I've obviously, you heard, um, um it, tiktok uh, all the issues about that and and uh, the political issues of tiktok right? I'm a, i get a little um i get a little worried myself but the concept of threads sounds very exciting i mean you're really talking to people and many people potentially just right there just like sitting
1: in a in a, a town hall right exactly a town hall is a good uh metaphor for what it can be on an online space as live things are happening people are interacting and adding to the conversation.
2: That's great. Um so we're going to take a a break in just a minute. Um I do want to talk a lot more about about um this and I noticed that you put a um comment about Google on your website and I wanted to talk about about Google and Perfect. some of the online shops
1: and all the things you do, this is a full- time job for you now, right? Miranda? Yes, so this summer, this was my last year teaching, and so in June, I am full time social media manager and content creator.
2: Good for you, Miranda Dalton has a company called Grow with Miranda, and um we've been talking about um her ability to help you um use social media and market your product or yourself, right, man? Uh, you're, you're a lot of times yeah.
1: think the person. I think so. And self-promotion is a new idea, right? Before the Internet existed, we were really business-focused, and now that we have the ability to be in the front of millions of people, um, marketing ourselves is, I think, kind of a new thing. Well, and how
2: do you work with – because I know when I first started, I was doing this TV show on Orca – Um, it was very unnerving or difficult, and and, um, I know you can edit, which is a good thing. Um, But now I've gotten so comfortable, it's like, okay, give me a mic and I'm I'm off and running. Um, But it takes a while, and how do you work
1: with people to get
2: over that fear, if that's the word for it?
1: Yeah, and video has its own unique challenges, right? People have this internalized perception about themselves that's the only they notice, right? Whether they're uncomfortable with something related to their appearance or the sound right. of their voice. And so getting people comfortable in front of the camera is, is a challenge. And my number one thing, if you're starting at home and you want to put video content out is just do it. Every time you get in front of the camera and you start talking, the more comfortable you are and the less intimidating it is. Um, and this is, you know, There's times where I record a video of myself and I have like a poppy seed in my teeth or, you know, I should have (laughs) blown my nose before the camera was rolling. And I still put those videos out there because guess what? No one's ever noticed. And so whatever you think people are going to notice about your appearance or the sound of your voice, that's in your head. And so just having those conversations with people, getting them comfortable in in front of the camera. And when I'm out doing a video content shoot, it's a lot easier um, because I'm the person behind the camera, so I can be smiling to them, you know, giving them a thumbs up and reassuring them that it's okay. And also just keep talking over any mess ups. That's what I always tell people. I've That's something I've learned in recording my own videos. If I stop and go, ah, I messed up those words, that loses my train of thought a lot more than just rolling past it.
2: Right. Just keep talking, right?
1: Exactly. We've, had that happen in, exactly. we've had that
2: happen in the studio because this is new for me doing during the radio where something's gone wrong and, and the producer will, you know, do his hand going, Keep talking, keep talking and you're like, What? <laughs> what yeah. am I supposed to say? It's like, Oh no. Um but anyway, um I think you're right. When the more relaxed you are, the better your message comes across to people who are who are listening or watching because um they and don't it, feel the tension.
1: And it's a practice like anything else. I actually took three weeks off um, from creating content for my own business. I wanted to take a light summer and that was something I could take off my plate that wouldn't impact my clients. And I just went to go do a reel again and I noticed I was really stiff in the video and I'm like, wow, you know, when I was creating videos every day, it was a lot, I was a lot calmer. I was a lot smoother and you're right. That presence does carry on camera.
2: Um so you you just said it reminded me of something that you have on your website, and i I wish I had it in front of me, and I'm sorry, but it was something about how do you feel if I could take away from you the thing you dislike the most to do
1: and
2: <laughs> and I didn't phrase that correctly but but what you're saying is what what don't you like to do? I'll do it for you, and um, what a burden off of somebody's shoulders, whatever that may be if if uh, you can lighten their load a little bit.
1: Yeah, I see a lot of business owners who have a creative-based business. So whether they're an artist or even just running a business has a lot of bandwidth. And social media takes that a lot of that creative and executive functioning bandwidth too. So you're asking someone to kind of double up when it comes to either creative output or um, executive functioning output. So if I can stand here And take those tasks off of you, even if it's just in the capacity of planning what you need to say. Because a lot of my clients, they're the face of their business. So I can't be the person in front of the camera, but I can help them come up with the ideas, get the videos together and edit them. And it ends up saving business owners so much time and so much energy that they can then devote back into their business. That's really
2: great. Do you do the videotography yourself, or do you um, have somebody to do that?
1: So I am currently doing it all um, myself, and I do the editing as well, so that's kind of built into my packages, and that's actually the creative work that I enjoy. Great. That's good. I'm
2: trying to learn that myself to do that because, um, um, you know, when you go to the public uh, access stations like the Orca and the uh, um, – all the other ones that are I think there's fourteen of them around Vermont, you can do a lot of stuff right there and they'll they'll do it for you, but you need somebody like you to uh, put that package together in front of the in front of the camera um is um is you know when I was talking about that fifteen minutes to get them what what do you consider a um uh a length of time that people
1: would actually listen because I think that's a big issue. Yeah, so on social media, we are really seeing attention spans uh, decrease rapidly. So uh, videos are between anywhere from 30 seconds to 90 seconds. So you're looking at a minute and a half to tell a story. And that's probably the number one thing that I coach clients on is how to tell their story briefly. And how are we getting the we got to get to the point as important as storytelling is and that structure is important. People want their information quickly, and people are looking for that information now on social media. Ten years ago, we would Google things to find things out, and now we're seeing people going to Instagram and TikTok to learn things, and they want to learn them in 90 seconds or less.
2: Well, I think it sounds like a short time, but you can actually say a lot in 90 seconds if it's if it's planned out. I have found that out myself on radio. They'll say you have a minute left and. In- you can do a lot of the talking in a minute.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, one thing that I really preach with my clients is repurposing content. So if I'm having this conversation with you right now, I'm recording an hour long radio show, but I can take out snippets of information in that 90 seconds and really tell a story with that. And so I think that's where people get overwhelmed. They think they need to create new content every day. But one of the powers of a social media manager is repurposing content and putting it out there because it used to be in marketing where you had to have seven touch points to convert someone to a purchase. And now we're seeing it at about 35. So you have to be making those connections, telling the same story over and over and over again for people to connect. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good
2: point. It, you, but yet you don't want to be obnoxious about being repetitive. Um, I must say, sometimes mm-hmm. when I see the same commercial on TV, I'm like, all right already, um, because there is a point where it's too much, right? And then there's a balance
1: about something I'll remember. Um, well, and I yeah. think that's what we're seeing in social media. People really want less rather than more, and that shift right. I would have told you four months ago, it's more important for you to post every day. That is no longer true today. Today, you're better off making one really good post with really good information a week than trying to post content every day. So we are seeing exactly that shift of people are sick of being advertised to. So if you're still working off of the idea that you need to be posting every day and you find yourself putting similar content out there every day, Uh, Take a step back and really try to put focus, connection, and telling your story and make one good post a week. And that's going to have the same leverage as posting every day did four months ago. And that brings me to an important topic. These trends in social media, they're changing not on a yearly basis, but now on a monthly basis. And as a business owner, it's really hard to keep up with trends. And that's why having a social media expert, even to tap into that's a service I offer, is a strategy call to just be like, okay, what's new in social media? What should I do? Because earlier on the show, we talked about hashtags, and hashtags are such an important way for linking content. But these social media platforms, they're no longer pushing content based on hashtags. So the only people it's still important to use a few hashtags because people might be searching for information from those hashtags, but the platform isn't pushing out content based on hashtags. So these trends are changing rapidly. So how do you how do you know that, Miranda? I'm just completely
2: over my head here. There's no place to go to look it up and say what's the trend? You have to you have to sense it yourself, I'm assuming how. How do the marketing people capture the the changes in, in trends? And what does that mean yeah, by the way?
1: What, do, what does trend mean? Yeah. So trends are what we are seeing right now working on social media. And it, a lot of it is speculation. Um, people will come out from Facebook, from TikTok, and they'll do updates on the platform. And then – social media managers like myself, and there's a large network, I use social media for my business to network with other social media managers. We start to interact with the platform on our different profiles we run, whether it's from our clients or our personal, and we do tests just like you would um, with any kind of marketing thing, or we do, we're doing a B test to see, okay, if I add this new feature, is that video going to be more popular versus the same video without that feature? And then we communicate that on social media. So, um, I like to say that I'm chronically online. And so by being online, watching these trends, watching other ex- experts think, speak on it and do these experiments, I can bring those ideas back to Vermont and back to uh, Vermont small base businesses and leverage those ideas. So that's kind of how I keep up with trends is by being online and just doing some tests. And I think that's the challenging part of marketing. I can't guarantee an outcome for you, but here's what we'll try. And then we're going to have a lot of data to look at at 30 days, 60 days, and then 90 days to really see what is effective.
2: A whole new world here.
1: What? Why
2: is you've mentioned Google in your website? Um, Why is that? Why did you mention Google, and why should people put their businesses on Google?
1: Yeah. So I know I said earlier that people are trending to um, go to social media to research businesses, but that is a younger demographic. There is still a whole lot of people out there that the first thing they need to do when they're looking for a plumber or a contractor or a career coach is type into Google plumber near me. And based on geolocation and keywords used on your Google profile, you will show up as the plumber near whoever in that situation. So if I had to give anyone who's listening one tip for SEO on their website, it's to make sure you're using a location tag. Because then that way people in your community can find you through Google searches.
2: Oh wow, this is really interesting. Uh, because I am one of those people that goes to Google and types it in. Um, so I'm, I am not of the younger generation. What would the younger generation do instead of doing what I do?
1: Yeah, so I would go to TikTok. It depends on what I need. If I'm, if I'm, well, here I'll tell you my process, kind of both ways. If I have to DIY something in my house, like I recently had a roof leak and my husband is replacing the drywall that we had to cut out of the roof, someone came and fixed the roof part. But with the leak, we cut it out and we went to YouTube to figure out how to replace drywall so we were looking on youtube maybe we're finding a 30 second clip on if i don't know how to clean something like i got a stain a specific stain in something and i want a quick fix on how to clean it i'm going to go to tiktok and watch a 30 second video because i can process visual information a lot quicker than i can reading and scouring the internet so that's one way people are looking for information and answers And then one thing, when it comes to businesses, if I'm looking for a business that I wanna work with, I might use Google search to see who it is. And the two things I'm gonna click on when I pull up a search link is their website. And from their website, I'm going to look at their social media to see pictures of their product. So we are now seeing places like Instagram and Facebook becoming this digital portfolio. So it's giving insight into a customer. So when you are a service-based business like I am, it's important that someone clicks on my Instagram and then all those reels where I'm talking about business, they're really giving getting a sense of what my values are and who I am as a person. So no longer social medias, we're about social networking. And I think we're seeing it uh, trend toward, back towards that way. But they're also digital portfolios. Whoa. This, speaking of uh, being
2: over my head, this is really exciting for me. Um, I wanted to mention the word politics, Miranda.
1: Um, yes. Do you, do you deal with uh, political candidates at all? I haven't yet, but I, I figured this question would come up, and I kind of thought of two two realms. One, if I was giving social media strategy advice to politics, I kind of thought of two things I would talk about. Do you want to hear them, Pat? Yes, please, because I'm a born politician. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, first thing that comes to mind is your ability to connect with the community. I really saw Keisha Ram Hinsdale do this very well when the, she had like filled the box truck campaigns, and she yep. was able to connect with the community and get people to donate supplies all through grassroots level of information through social media. So I thought, wow, what a powerful way to connect with the community directly through social media And then the second thing that um, came up when I thought about politicians and social media is integrity, right? you yep. people look to people for inform- that are politicians and government officials for information. And so we have to make sure especially in this day and age and I would say this is even true if you're not a politician. Make sure you completely understand your sources before you share information online. I think as a, as citizens, it's our responsibility to share um information that we know is coming from a place of integrity and truth. Uh-huh. So those are kind of my two things when it comes to politicians and social media. Um uh,
2: Miranda, um how do people reach you? Where do they go and where can they find out more information yeah. about what you do? <clears throat>
1: So the best way to stay connected with ideas with me is to follow me on Instagram, and that is Grow with Miranda D. And then if you want to work together, you can email me at grow at com. And then I'm actually going to be launching a podcast this fall under the same name, Grow with Miranda D, where I talk about trends in social media. And so I would love to have everybody tune into that as well. That
2: is excellent. I love the podcast idea. So, just tell me just a little bit off the topic. I read a, a VT Digger article. Is that you about Stone Throw Pizza?
1: Um, yeah, so I briefly was um that same person. I was briefly uh working in the gardens uh for Stone Throw Pizza, but I'm currently not in that position. Well, I just thought what a great title um that you were the,
2: um, where is the title, garden manager. I thought, I want to be a garden manager. Everything that comes in my house alive and beautiful lasts about two weeks, and that's it for me.
1: So um, you're a
2: garden person, which is excellent
1: and that's kind that's of where the grow comes from. So it's kind of that double um ah. thing for me is I like to help businesses grow, but I also like growing things and I get you on house plants. Some you have to have a special green thumb for house plants. I have, yeah. you know, seven tomato plants outside that are just, you know, bushels and bushels of tomatoes on it and then I have a few house plants that are dried to the bone. So oh, I think I, I'll, you, I'll take Brenda all the rain.
2: It makes me feel better. It's like instant death for any green thing that comes into my house, which is why sometimes we do plastic or fake. Yeah. But anyway, um, what you um, I didn't write it down, but what what when you were teaching, what was your focus?
1: Yeah. So I was in. So my bachelor's degree is in biology, and I really was focused on STEM. Being a teacher, I actually never taught anything the same year in a row. So I taught everything from algebra to engineering and then my final year i was teaching biology and chemistry at champlain valley union high school that's great good for you well i just i
2: i would love to talk to you more and i think i'm going to do it on a on a personal basis because i think um, if you're on if you're out there in social media you really need to know what the heck you're doing because it can can probably turn ugly on you um and you mentioned something right. about always responding to inquiries that that's a very important thing to do but if somebody's asking you a question or inquiring, you've got to get right back to them and, and
1: uh and answer them, correct? Yeah, so I try to have a twenty-four hour response time, but this idea that I'm not go if you have a question about social media, I'm not gonna charge you for my time. Get into my DM. Send me an email because what I do when someone asks me a question and they're not necessarily a client is I then get to make a video about that answer and use it on my own profiles and platforms.
2: That That's a great idea so that everybody can share because I always figure even if my question is stupid, there must be somebody else out there thinking the same thing. I can't be that unique um, and it would be good to get, get an answer out for everybody so I was thinking what does that cuz you're going to be doing this full time so what does the future look like for Miranda Dalton?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm taking I could take on about 2 to 3 more clients. I am really focused in my own content creation when it comes to my podcast that I'm launching and just maintaining the current business clients that I have, and then also leveraging my social media skills for the Wastefield Farmer's Market. It's an incredible organization and it's so important to the community of Wastefield. So I love that I'm able to help that or a nonprofit organization in that way.
2: Yeah, that is, I must say um, that is an excellent farmer's market because it's got entertainment, it's got great food, uh, wine. I mean, what else, you know, it's all, it's all there and the great crafts, um, and it's a perfect location, lots of parking and it's, it's just great. And, um, I really was surprised to see you there and, and now I see why you are there. Um, because I didn't, um, uh, maybe people aren't quite in the, in mindset to talk about, um, social media or, or whatever you, if you're walking around the farmer's market, but it works. So good for you.
1: Well, and it's a community connector. I will say I've gotten a lot of clients through being at the market. And people are there to connect with other people. Not only are they shopping and buying veggies, but you will see the same families there every week, and their children are playing in the grass together, and they're dancing to the music, and they're supporting local businesses. So it's this beautiful place in the heart of Wastefield.
2: Well, I know I had Ensign Tebbets on the show a a couple of days ago, Secretary of Agriculture, and he was really um, encouraging people to go to farmer's markets to buy local because of what the disaster that everybody's facing so we could help them out and help the community out. Any, um, We have one minute to go, Miranda. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad I went to the farmer's market um, to meet
1: you, and um, I'll probably be there again. Um, I'm excited to see you, and thank you for having me. And like I said, you can find me on Instagram under Grow with Miranda D or email me at grow at MirandaDalton.com
2: deal. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.